singing this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 20. We're at the top of the ninth inning, folks. John chapter 20. We'll finish up by the end of November. The Gospel of John, it's been a two and a half year journey, and I want to thank you for the privilege that you've given me of being your tour guide through this fascinating account of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, in preparation for the Lord's Supper, we focused on Psalm 51. But in the weeks prior to that, we saw Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, concede to the Jewish religious establishment. Verse 15 of John chapter 9 reads, So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. How ironic. He came to his own, and his own refused to receive him. In fact, they cried out for him to be crucified, claiming allegiance to Caesar. So he, that is Pilate, then handed him over to them, that's his Roman soldiers, to be crucified. In John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16, we learn of Jesus' conviction. In verses 17 to 30, it tells the story of his crucifixion, ending with verse 30. Notice, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Two weeks ago, we focused on verses 31 to 42. The death of Jesus was confirmed by Roman soldiers, an eyewitness testimony, and the prophetic words of Scripture. And then his body was removed from the cross and laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. The burial itself involved a request, a release, and a display of respect. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy and an elite Sadducee who sat on the Supreme Court of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, he was the one who made the request. Pilate, that pagan Roman governor was the one who issued the release of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus, whom Jesus back in John chapter 3 had referred to as the teacher of Israel, that Nicodemus, he was the one that displayed the respect for the body of Jesus, giving a generous amount, some say between 75 and 100 pounds of a mixture of spices that were used to prepare Jesus' body for burial. He too, he was on that Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, an elite Pharisee. This morning we want to focus on the opening verses of John chapter 20. As we come to John chapter 20, it's now Sunday morning, the first day of a brand new week. And three sets of eyes 
approached the tomb where Jesus' body was laid to rest prior to sunset on Friday evening. What they discovered is hard to believe. But seeing is believing. And all three confirmed that the tomb was now empty. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning. And I'll begin reading at verse 1 of John chapter 20 and read through to the, well, halfway point of John chapter 20, verse 11. So beginning at verse 1 of John chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. (coughs) Father, thank you for these scriptures. A written revelation of your person, your plans, and your purposes a record of how you have continued to reach out and engage with humanity. You desire a relationship with us. And although we are completely undeserving and unworthy, you have made it possible. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring us safely home to you. And once we establish that relationship by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, the Spirit who indwells every true believer empowers us to live lives of obedience. Lives that obey your word as revealed in Scripture. May we treasure these words in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. May they become like seed planted in the good soil of our receptive hearts so that they grow up and produce much fruit, 30, 60, a hundredfold, transforming us more and more, little by little, into the image of Jesus so that our actions and reactions, our words and our deeds, please and glorify you. 
used this story of the discovery of that empty tomb to give us strength and courage to be the kind of people you are calling us to be. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing is believing. Beloved, the tomb was empty, and you and I now have a choice. A choice to make. How will you respond to the empty tomb? Will you ignore it? Dismiss it? Try to explain it away? But, beloved, before you deny it, the Apostle John invites us to come. Come to the tomb through the eyes of three sets of eyes. The eyes of Mary Magdalene, the eyes of the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the eyes of Simon Peter. You see, according to the Apostle John's report, the empty tomb was investigated by three followers of Jesus. Three sets of eyes. Look again at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Remember Mary Magdalene? She was one of those four women who stood at the cross, according to John chapter 19, verse 25. Not wanting to be there, but not wanting to leave him. She had witnessed his sufferings. The same suffering described in that Old Testament prophecy, written hundreds of years earlier, predicting what would happen to Israel's Messiah. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Isaiah chapter 52 Verse 14. Can you imagine being one of those women? Not wanting to be there, but refusing to abandon him. Mary Magdalene would have heard the, the resignation in his voice when he assigned care for his mother to that disciple whom he loved. She would have heard his heartbreaking appeal. I am thirsty. She would have heard his final words announcing, it is finished, and watched as he took his last breath. Not wanting to be there, she had witnessed it all up close, and personal. The next day was Sabbath, a day of rest and re reflection, set apart to worship the God of Israel. And I have to believe that that was probably one of the longest Sabbath days of Mary Magdalene's life. But then it was Sunday. And she came early, while it was still dark. 
she came and saw. And what exactly did she see? The stone that had been used to cover the entrance to the tomb had been rolled away. The same stone that according to Matthew's account was to seal the tomb and then be guarded. Listen as I read from Matthew's report, beginning at verse 62 of chapter 27. The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. And Pilate replied, take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. Now here in John chapter 20, John doesn't say that Mary saw any guards. But what she did see was that that stone that had been used to seal the tomb had now been rolled away. And so the tomb was wide open. I suppose it would be like returning home after this worship service and pulling in the driveway and seeing the front door of our house, the screen door propped open and the inside door swung wide open so that anyone walking down the street could see directly into our house. That would be somewhat concerning. So what did Mary Magdalene do in response to what she saw? Look at verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now she was a, one of at least three other women who had arrived at the tomb that morning. Perhaps she was the leader of the pack like Peter was to the Twelve, perhaps Mary Magdalene was to this group of women that had come to the tomb. Who knows? But what we do know from the Apostle John's report is that she is the one who ran back to tell the other disciples about this open tomb. And notice what she said. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary Magdalene was absolutely convinced that there would be a missing body, that someone had removed Jesus' corpse from that tomb. And notice, thoughts of a resurrection were the furthest thing from her mind. She didn't even consider it. The they whom 
she's accusing of taking the body would have perhaps been the Roman soldiers or, in my mind, more likely the, the Jewish religious elite who had opposed Jesus throughout his ministry. Again, we're not told. Some commentators notice that grave robbing was a fairly common thing in first century Palestine. In fact, so much so that the Roman emperor, Claudius, who ruled from AD 41 to AD 54, found it necessary to make stealing corpses, removing stones that were rolled across entrances, or in any way destroying a tomb, well, he ruled that it would become a capital punishment. You would receive a death sentence if you were discovered doing so. But to suggest that robbers would actually steal a corpse doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. To steal Nicodemus's contributions to that whole burial ceremony? 75 to 100 pounds of expensive spices, myrrh and aloe? That I could understand. But a corpse? Mary Magdalene, she came, she saw, and she ran. Ran to tell the others. The disciple whom Jesus loved also came to the tomb. In our study of this gospel, we've come to understand that that unnamed disciple was probably none other than the Apostle John himself, the author of this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. The one who, empowered by the Spirit of God some oh, 50, 60 years later, beyond this event, wrote an infallible, inerrant report or an account of the life of Jesus. So with that in mind, it's interesting to note that John included this detail, that he outran Peter. Look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb, the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Perhaps the competitive spirit still lived in 90 AD. But it did set up an important comparison. Because although John arrived first, he did not risk defilement by entering the tomb. He stood outside. Notice what he saw at first glance. Verse 5. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Those linen wrappings were the same ones referred to in John chapter 19, verse 40. Notice. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial customs of the Jews. 
Now, if it was grave robbers who had taken the body, they would certainly not have taken the time to remove the wrappings so that they could steal a naked corpse. It just doesn't make sense. What did he do in response to what he saw? John ran, he stooped, he looked in, and he stood. That is, until Peter arrived. John followed Peter into the tomb. And once he saw, well, let's look at verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and saw and believed. He saw not only the linen wrappings, but the face cloth rolled up in a place by itself. Again, grave robbers would not have taken the time to fold a head covering neatly and place it off to one side. Neither would friends of Jesus who were wanting to remove this body. Some have suggested that the head covering was lying where Jesus had been laying, where Jesus' head had been laying. But again, the text is not clear. What is clear is that someone had taken that head covering, rolled it up neatly, and set it off to one side. So what did John do in response to what he saw? The end of verse 8 tells us he saw and believed. John, writing some 50 years after the fact, when he stood with Peter in an empty tomb, reflecting on it, considered it a significant moment in his own personal faith journey. He saw the evidence, and he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he was alive, even before encountering a resurrected Jesus. John believed, and so can we. John's faith took a giant leap forward while he stood with Peter in that empty tomb. Simon Peter also came to the tomb, Although he arrived second, losing the foot race, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Peter's true character shines through, as he didn't hesitate. He just dove right in through the entrance of that empty tomb where Jesus had been laid to rest. Look at verse 6. And Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying, under, lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up and in a place by itself. Notice what he saw. The linen wrappings lying there, and that face cloth rolled up 
and it's set off in a place by itself. There's a lot of seeing that's happening in this passage of Scripture. In fact, what I've done in my Bible is taken a pen and, and circled every time the word saw shows up. Here, the word means to be engaged as a spectator, because not all of those saw words in English are actually the same Greek word. The one used to describe what Peter saw is actually that engaged spectator, like a, like a grandparent watching a grandchild at a recital, piano recital. Or perhaps like family members that fr and friends at Brittany and, and Mark's wedding yesterday. Peter was fully engaged in the inspection of Jesus' empty tomb. Perhaps like a, more like a detective at a crime scene. And what did he do in response to what he saw? He ran and arrived second. He entered. He observed. And then he went away. His companion believed and then did the same thing. He went away. Look at verse 10. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. Mary Magdalene, she stood and she wept. And none of them had yet connected this event to what had been predicted again and again in the Old Testament scriptures. Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Seeing is believing. The empty tomb was yet another sign pointing to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Remember the seven signs sprinkled throughout this account of the life and ministry of Jesus? In John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine at Cana of Galilee during a wedding celebration. In John chapter 14, 4, he heals a, heals a nobleman's son at a distance. He was in Capernaum, and Jesus was nowhere near Capernaum. But he ordered the healing, and it took place. In John chapter 5, he heals a man at the pool of Bethesda who had been lame for 38 years. In John chapter 6, he fed a crowd of 5,000 men, which means approximately counting women and children, approximately 20,000 people using five barley loaves and two fish. And everyone's hunger was satisfied, so much so that they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. 
later that same evening when his disciples were out halfway across the Sea of Galilee, in the midst of a violent storm, Jesus walked out on the water, joined them in the boat, and commanded the wind to cease. And immediately, the Sea of Galilee became calm. The sixth sign, John chapter 9. Jesus healed a man who had been born blind, gave him new eyes, created new eyes. The seventh sign, of course, is John chapter 11, when Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, who'd been in the tomb no less than four days. In fact, his sister objected, remember? Because he's going to smell. The decomposition has already begun. Each of these signs were selected from a pool of many signs so that together, as one commentator puts it, they would become a common, cumulative, and collective purpose. What is that purpose? Well, John discloses it in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We refer to it often as the purpose of this entire gospel. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his, his disciples. Many more than these seven, which are not written in this book, but these seven have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Beloved, I would suggest that as absolutely fantastic as and unbelievable as each of those seven signs were, they pale in comparison to the empty tomb. Seeing is believing. And so the question becomes, what will you and I do in response to this empty tomb? Will we ignore it, dismiss it, try to explain it away, deny it? Well, if any of those are the choice you choose, let me just say, you're not the first. And you will not be the last. But what you need to understand is that Romans chapter 1, verse 18, informs us that left to ourselves, you and I will always suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We are born with sin natures. We have a natural aversion to God and are incapable of avoiding words and deeds, actions and reactions that displace him. And so that Romans chapter 3, verse 23, is absolutely right. All have sinned, all of us, and fallen short of the glory of God, or the standard that he requires for relationship with him. Our sinful natures impair us 
they impair our ability to think so that we cannot accept the reality of this empty tomb. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 reads, But a natural man does not accept, is inhospitable, will not entertain the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or praised. That will lead us to that ignore, dismiss, deny option when we consider this empty tomb. But there is an alternative. Let's call it believe, work, and hope option. Let me explain the believe, work, and hope option, and then I'll close. Believe. As you know, that was John's primary purpose for writing this gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. The Apostle John wrote this account so that you and I will believe that Jesus died to pay the price for our sin. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us safely home to God. The empty tomb, it invites us to believe. Work. When we exercise that kind of genuine belief, repenting of our sins, Jesus told his disciples, we will come to him and make our abode with him. John chapter 14, verse 23. So with this spirit of God living within us, every genuine believer, we can work out our salvation as God works in us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We work out our salvation by, by putting ourselves in places, engaging in activities, and develop habits that invite this Spirit of God to continue his renovating work in each one of our lives. A work that begins on the inside and then bubbles to the surface. The Apostle Paul in his prayer to believers in Ephesus wrote, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. You see, folks, the, the empty tomb gives us a whole new confidence, not in ourselves, but in what God wants to work in and through us. In fact, verse 18 of that same chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, reads, I pray that your hearts 
will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. Hope. Belief, work, hope. Beloved, we live in a world that continues to push us towards despair, hopelessness. It is a broken world, stained and polluted, and to a large degree, infected by sin. Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. The preacher in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes repeatedly shared his assessment of the very best that this life has to offer. Here's his assessment. In the long run, according to the preacher, it is vanity of vanity, emptiness of emptiness. Life without God is like chasing after the wind. But Jesus in John chapter 16, 33 goes on. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The empty tomb is proof of that. The empty tomb stands as a, as a forever marker, a stake driven in the ground, a historic moment that can never be taken away. The Apostle Paul claims that if our hope cannot be established in that empty tomb, it is useless and we have believed in vain and that we more than any people should be pitied. But the empty tomb, but the empty, but the tomb was empty. And Peter suggests that we better be prepared as a result to give an answer for the hope that we have as believers. Christ died and was buried. He rose from the dead, leaving behind an empty tomb, proving that his sacrifice for our sin was accepted by his heavenly Father. And that by believing that he is the Christ, Son of God, you and I can have life, eternal life, a relationship with God that begins today and lasts forever. Peter may have just been engaged as a, as a spectator that day, in the early morning, in the early Sunday morning. But listen to how he talks in his first epistle that he wrote years after the fact. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Father, thank you for the empty tomb. Proof that Jesus has indeed overcome this world and paid the price for our sins so that we can believe and enjoy the benefits that come with a relationship with you. And during our short time here, 
in this life. May we lean into our relationship with you through the good times and the challenging, more difficult times. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every genuine believer. Your word promises that he will bear witness with our spirits, telling us that we do belong to you. May that give us confidence to live as we know we ought to live, to be faithful ambassadors in all that we do and say, in our actions and in our reactions. Thank you for your inescapable and enabling presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.